I saw Alicia when I was watching Aerosmith videos on my treadmill, and um, <laughs> and I put it on tape, and I gave it to the studio when I handed in the script, and I said, "This girl with the saying this stuff, just think of that," and they said. Then they read it and they went, you mean the brown-haired one? And I was like, Liv Tyler. I said, no, the other one. And uh, she didn't read. She came in to meet me. And we went to a restaurant. And she had a drink with a straw. And rather than, like, lift the straw or lift the drink or anything, she goes, it's so cute. I thought, oh, that, I got to use her. Then I thought maybe Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. But he was on tour, and um, Paul had more of a, I could kind of be a nerd kind of guy, you know. Um, But Paul had, he was really cute, and he read, and I liked him a lot, and I was still looking. And then I saw him at a restaurant, and he had cut all his hair off. And I got like, why did you do that? He said, well, I saw Forrest Gump. (laughs) And... um, I, I read for you, and I didn't hear from you, so I thought, i got to exchange everything, and I cut all my hair off. And I hated it. So I did a screen test with him with some, like, hair pieces, but it didn't look right. It, it looked really bad. So, um, but he was still the best, so I used him. And then I said, just wear a cap. <laughs> so that's how I got Paul Rudd. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a podcast directed by. So we are starting a new sequence here with a new director. Uh, We're going to be talking about Amy Heckerling. And to do that, I have our guest expert, uh, Roxana Haddadi. Roxana, thanks for being on the show. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited. Oh, good. Fantastic. So before we jump into the movies and Amy Heckerling, I wanted you to kind of introduce yourself, um, like maybe where people can find your work, kind of like who are you and like, why are you an expert on Amy Heckerling? Sure. Um, so as you said, my name is Roxana Haddadi. You can find my work on Pajiba, the AV club, Roger Ebert, Brightwall dark room, crooked marquee, a couple of other places. Um, and I am most interested in sort of the overlaps between film and feminism and labor and capitalism and all that sort of stuff. Um, and for me, I really enjoy Amy Heckerling's work. If I could get her name out, that's a good time. <laughs> um, I really enjoy her work because I think that she is one of those voices that was the first to sort of flip the script on the teen coming of age movie from mm. being something that came from a very male perspective place to being one that brought equal focus to young women's perspectives like in their own words Mm. so i find her work very fascinating in that regard and then i also think she's really interesting because i do think she is also sort of a victim 
of the fickleness of Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And how in a certain time, like in the early 90s, it felt like Hollywood didn't know what to do with female directors. Mm -hmm. Because you look at something like Clueless, like I still consider Clueless one of the seminal teen adolescent films like i don't think there's a better adaptation of emma i don't think there's a better film that captures like a certain slice of california life yes and yet it feels like you know like we talk about how john hughes dictated pretty much the entire 80s adolescent experience but amy heckerling got one movie and then it was like okay bye <laughs> right and this is someone so, who has yeah. proved she can do it before too like with fast times yes like yes. clueless was not the first time she did it and yet <laughs> and I think we'll yeah. talk about this probably later, but like, you know, there's a difference. I mean, I love that you say like, you know, there was a time when, you know, female filmmakers weren't treated very well by Hollywood. And I'm like, now are we talking about now? <laughs> yeah. Still, and that's, you know, and that's, that's also a very good point. Yeah. It's like, we're sort of talking about it, like with this now perspective where we're like, mm -hmm. oh, there are so many. And yes, there are many more <laughs> opportunities now, but it's still many more in terms of like a small percentage of a very big pool. Yes. So in one way, you're totally right. Like what Amy Heckerling went through is unfortunately not that dissimilar from what a lot of female directors still go through. Yeah. I think it just feels more jarring to me because it sort of feels like if for a present day film Twitter analog, it's like if Greta Gerwig made Lady Bird and they were like, okay, you're done. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think people <laughs> maybe know? don't remember like how big of a hit Clueless was. Like Clueless was massive, like not just in terms of the cultural lexicon, but in terms of like actual dollars too, like that would be made right. bank. And yet, <laughs> and you would think like, and of course, if a male filmmaker made a movie that made that much money, his next 10 films would be lined up. They're like, well, well, we're going to try and recapture that. Even if your last five movies failed, we're going to, we're going to find a way to find your next clueless. But with a female filmmaker, you know, you make one quote unquote mistake. I mean, we talked about it on this show when we covered Karen Kusama and Eon mm. Flux came out and then it was like, oh, well, mm. fuck her. Like, we're not going to give her any money anymore, even though, you know, Girl Fight had come out first and that was like this huge indie hit. And it's like if a man had directed this indie hit, we'd forgive Eon Flux or we'd actually let her make it with her script uh imagine that right. uh so so yeah it's a very different perspective uh before we continue i did want to kind of list off the movies that we're going to cover for the month uh so we're going to start uh as she did with fast times at ridgemont high uh and then we're going to look at look who's talking and i could never be your woman because both of those are kind of inspired by her own life uh and then we're gonna take a look at loser and then watch a movie that she didn't direct called angels with dirty faces which is uh, an inspiration for loser and then we'll move on to Johnny Dangerously. And then we're going to take a look at Clueless combined with Ed Wood. Uh, again, an inspiration for her, her lead character in Clueless. Uh, and then we're going to finish off the month with a little scene movie called Vamps. Uh, and then we're going to bring Roxana back um, for our last episode to kind of wrap everything up. Um, so um, actually, you know, for those of our listeners who are also readers, and I hope there's at least one or two, have you published anything on her career or her movies before where people could kind of seek out your perspective writing wise? Sure. I have written, I wrote a like look back piece about Clueless, which was published mm -hmm. actually two weeks ago. And that was for Crooked Marquee. Um, and my thesis there was basically, I think what I covered just now, which is this idea that 
so often it feels like adolescent movies are about young women, but the stories are only very frequently told from that perspective. Mm. Um, so I sort of looked at Clueless in comparison with like John Hughes movies or any other movies we've seen, like a lot of the big hits, like Heather's bring it on. Like so many of these movies that we adore came from a male perspective. So yeah. I sort of wrote about Clueless in those terms and Honestly, how great it still is and what a joy it still is to watch. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a little, like, behind the curtain. I mean, I ask you that question if you had written anything I actually knew that you did. Not only because I read it, but Twitter has this great feature where you could just search the people you follow and, like, put in a search term like Amy Heckerling. And you were the first person to come up. And I was like, oh, oh perfect. that's funny. This is a perfect, <laughs> this is a perfect, perfect time to do this. So, yeah, definitely check mm. that out. We'll put the link in the in the show notes so people can access it very easily. Um, so kind of moving backwards, what was your introduction to Amy Heckerling's work? And is this something where you saw her work and you're like, oh, I got to see more? Or did you watch it at kind of a young age? Because I think a lot of us, when we first start watching movies, we're not like, oh, it's by random director. I'm going to watch all their movies like us movie nuts are now. Where maybe you watch, right. like, I just watched for the first time uh, a movie called Mikey and Nikki by Elaine May. It's the first movie I've ever seen by her. And now I kind of want to seek out everything she ever directed. But maybe that's not the same when you're like 12 or 13 or younger. So what was your introduction mm -hmm. to Amy Heckerling? I am pretty sure my introduction was Fast Times, mm. I think, on like a Saturday afternoon UPN viewing. Oh, UPN. Like, that, is, that is going back. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that is going back. Yeah. A lot of my early formative movie memories are from UPN viewing. Love it. <laughs> you know, because it was like we, I mean, I think we're about the same age. I'm 32. Like, we grew oh, up in a time when we had. That is very nice of you to say. I'm 31, okay, well, so I appreciate that's it. Fine. But... <laughs> yeah, we're about the same age. That's fine. Whatever. Within a decade, you know, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. But, but so then you also remember, like, you had UPN and you had WB, yep. and there were Saturday afternoon viewings. Yep. And so, yeah, I'm pretty sure I watched Fast Times illicitly because i think i was a little too young <laughs> to be watching it <laughs> and i just remember thinking that like it was funny and i don't even remember how i knew that it was funny because it was so different from my own experience and i certainly was too young to watch it and i think a lot of the sex stuff went over my head but i remember just thinking like this is funny and like i like this and then I think at some point, I don't remember if it was late middle school or early high school, is when I watched Clueless. And again, it was like mm. years after it had come out at that point. But then after I watched it is I think when I sort of realized like, okay, this is what I'm living through, right? Like mm -hmm. this is everybody saying like everybody talking like this like i sort of felt like once i saw clueless i understood better the like teen experience around me and how it felt like it was shaped in relation to this movie mm -hmm. and then when i i think then when i became like more interested in movies just overall i don't know that must have been high school or something is when i sought out some of her other work um, and I've sort of tried to follow it since then. But like, as we've talked about, like, there has been sort of a difficulty in finding some of her work. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I Could Never Be Your Woman was direct to DVD. And Vamp's got, like, a very, like, a micro-small release. Mm-hmm. So these are things that I've, like, sort of found since then. Like, Vamp's is still streaming now. I think it's streaming on, like, Tubi. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think now we're, like, living in a time where her work is, like, a little easier to find. Um, but, you know, going from someone who, like, saw her work probably in, like, elementary, middle, high school, then there was sort of that gap of, like, wait, so, like, how do I keep up with what this person is doing? Right. And I think that has sort of crystallized for me, like, it is sort of hard to find her work, and there is sort of a cautionary tale there about, like, how Hollywood treats its female directors and what opportunities they do or more often do not get. Yes, absolutely. So I'm glad you brought up this idea of like kind of finding finding her movies when you were much younger, rediscovering as a high school student, and like now as someone in their 30s, because my next question is, like, how has your relationship with her work changed? And this might be the perfect question for you, because you just did kind of a look back at one of her movies. So how is that? Ch- mm-hmm. How is it different for you at 31 than it was at like 15 or 16? Mm, that's a good question. I think I think one of the things that's different is I think I get a lot more of her humor now, which is sort of like a silly thing to say. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember like watching Clueless and being drawn in by like the outfits and the energy and all that stuff. But I think it, it felt like something I was watching and I was like outside of that world. Mm-hmm. Now when I'm a little bit older and I watch it, I feel like I recognize more of what the characters are going through and I get more of the humor and more of the references. And I think a lot of that obviously is just like you grow up, right? And like more things resonate with you because you know more about the world. But Honestly, now at like 31, even though I'm like totally on the other side of the adolescent experience, like revisiting Clueless, I appreciated it more. Like I appreciated more of the effort that must have gone into the crafting of that movie and into so deeply studying like a subculture and a clique and all of those like adolescent sort of ways that we define ourselves. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I think I appreciate it more because I was like, okay, I, I understand more what she's doing here rather than just like thinking it was like flashy and fun and, you know, thinking Paul Rudd was cute, which I still do. But True. I think, yeah. you know, I think there's like more, there was more context there. And I think now also that I'm a little bit older, this was something you alluded to as well. I sort of see more of how she was putting herself into her work without mm-hmm. us really knowing it yet. You know, like I think about Vamps, like Vamps feels very much to me like a film in conversation with Clueless and not just because like Alicia Silverstone stars in both. But there's something about Clueless to me, which is very much an homage to being young. Like you're very hopeful. You're very young. You think you can change the world. And okay, maybe you can't change the world, but like you can change your neighborhood or your family. You can better things. And I feel like they're very much is this awareness of the ambition that comes with youth and then i feel like in vamps it's like you're the total opposite right it's like you have these vampires who are clinging on to that idea of youth but more and more it feels empty and they're all they're ready for what the next phase 
would be, right? And so I almost feel like Vamps is her film about growing up and like realizing what adulthood is and what those responsibilities are and what you might want to shape for yourself. Like how do you shape your own little corner of the world for your own desires and your own wants? And so I think knowing more about like her own personal story, I think then puts some of those other films in perspective. And there was that big reveal recently about um, her daughter and like, you know, who her daughter's father was. And so I, I do feel like when you have some more of those pieces and you look back at more of your work, you're like, Oh, okay. I see what you were yeah. doing there. Like, Look sure. who's talking sort of takes like a whole other yeah. bent. Get much you know? darker than when you take all this into account. And I'm glad you mentioned this idea of like almost, you know, almost engaging with Clueless and maybe even Fast Times in a better way as you get older. Because it's something I've noticed as I've rewatched both of those movies. It's like how, like you mentioned when you first watched Fast Times, a lot of this stuff goes over your head. Those are very adult movies. Uh, when it comes to how they deal with teenagers, you know, and I think that's something that maybe sets her apart from someone like John Hughes, who I like as a filmmaker, but I don't think you could ever accuse his work of being adult. Um, like things mm -hmm. like The Breakfast Club, I think you, you're going to get the perfect Breakfast Club viewing when you're like 15. Um, and I think you might yeah. get the perfect Fast Times viewing when you're in your 20s. After you've kind of gone past it, you look back like, yeah, that is oh, that is very on point. And I think it's something maybe she doesn't get enough credit for because she's mostly known for those two movies as these kind of high school coming of age films. And I think sometimes we denigrate that just like we denigrate rom-coms. So basically any anywhere that women get a chance to direct, we tend to, we tend to denigrate. Uh, but I think there's a lot there. So I'm really glad uh, that you brought that up. And kind of jumping off that, one of the questions we kind of always asked our experts is what can people expect from this director's movies. Like if you're going into this totally blind, like I've never seen an Amy Heckerling movie, somehow I never saw Clueless, uh, what can they expect? And we really want to kind of jump on this because the original name for our show, uh, I tell everyone this because I think it's a great name, but iTunes uh, is fascist and would never let us do this. Uh, we wanted to call it Auteurs for Assholes because this is kind of who we are. Uh, so, but that could never fly in the title. So Amy Heckerling as an auteur, as a director, what can someone expect going in totally blind to her movies? That's a very good question. Man, going in totally blind. Um, you know, one thing I think about her work is I think it's very playful. Hmm. Like, I think that she is able to take you to places of emotional depth with sort of an unanticipated deft hand like your point about how she is putting together coming of age movies is very true and the coming of age movie can be very serious and like very self-righteous <laughs> and you know i understand that boyhood is a very well-crafted <laughs> film but it sort of wears me out you know like i think i think that there i think that we take very seriously the act of like growing up and i put that in quotation marks um but i think that Amy Heckerling gives that process its proper emotional due while also being very, very funny. Like, mm -hmm. I think that Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Clueless are both very amusing, not only in how they build 
a language for their characters. They build like a very fully realized world. So I think something you could expect is that you're not really going into movies where she hasn't considered all the details of these people's lives. Yeah. I think that she is very thoughtful in how characters are crafted and into making us know very easily what their desires are. Like there's not a lot of subterfuge with Heckerling's characters or with her films. Like she's not trying to trick you and make you think that like character wants X when they really want Y. <laughs> like, yes. you know, like she, she doesn't really pull those punches. Like she wants to show you who these people are and she wants to show you what they're going through. And she wants you to be invested in that. Yeah. And I think fast times is very much like that because it follows like this group of friends and all their dating crap and like all of their school drama and all that sort of stuff. And to some people that might seem mundane, but like for teenagers and hell for a lot of us, like that's life. Like you go to school or you go to work and like you shoot the shit with your friends and you fall in love. And like, that's just what it, that's just what it is. Um, So I think that she is very playful and very thoughtful And I also think, and you sort of got to this with Look Who's Talking, and I sort of alluded to this with Vamps, I also think that she's somebody who has, like, a very clear perspective in terms of what she thinks life is about. Like, when rewatching Clueless, I was very... Maybe I had forgotten, but it was nice to be reminded that, like, basically the message of Clueless is... You can be compassionate and you can be kind and you can be all these things that are nice to other people without really changing who you are. Like it sort of takes minimal effort to be a good person, (laughs) which, you know, I think like I think that she is very intentional in how she makes that clear. Like I think about Loser like Jason Biggs's entire character and loser is just that he's a good person and other people think that's uncool. (laughs) Like, you know, like he just is a good guy. Like he wants to do well in school. He really likes Mina Suvari. He doesn't understand why she's infatuated with Greg Kinnear's like asshole professor character. (laughs) Like, I think that she, I think that Heckerling is just very interested in like what makes goodness like being a good partner being a good daughter being a good friend like all that stuff and you're right that those are a lot of emotional beats that sometimes pop up in films directed by women and that sometimes it feels like we don't take that seriously like i know that loser as an example was like pretty much panned upon its release like Mm -hmm. i feel like it is very much a forgotten movie um and i think that's fine like i don't think losers like amazing or anything (laughs) but sometimes i also think it seems a little bit bold that like heckerling was like you know what like i'm just gonna make a movie about a nice guy and like see what happens (laughs) right right i'm just gonna take those kids from american pie uh and i'm gonna make a nice little movie like that's (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's a great point that she does talk a lot in her movies about being good and like watching that in 2020 
feels kind of revolutionary, uh, maybe because mm-hmm. our world is on fire uh, and everyone and everything is terrible. But just watching good people do good things does feel like very bold. So it's been it's been nice to kind of go back and watch some of Amy Heckerling's work. And speaking of that, actually, on our show, you know, a lot of times we cover older directors from times gone by. Like one of the first directors we covered was John Ford. So one of the things we like to kind of talk about is like, is there anything we need to keep in mind with this director's work that may feel outdated or something you have to take you know, like, okay, well, uh, there's a lot of racist stuff in John Ford movies, so we gotta, we gotta deal with mm, that. Mm-hmm, uh, but we also have mm-hmm. to understand it's of his time. And mm-hmm. a lot of times with modern filmmakers, we don't really have to think about that much. But Amy Heckerling's career has spanned a fair amount of time. Like, she was working in the early 80s, which now, it hurts me to say, is like 40 years ago. Uh, so, um, is there anything we have to keep in mind with her work um, as we kind of go through it? That's a good question. Um, I I had brought up John Hughes in my comparison with Clueless because I actually think that John Hughes movies have not aged well, <laughs> like at all. Um, oh, and I, agree. I do think 100%. that, like, yeah, you know, like I enjoy them or whatever, but I'm also like these are problematic as shit. <laughs> um, but rewatching Clueless, I was surprised because I was like, wait is there anything offensive in this movie? (laughs) And I think the thing, like, I think what we see with Heckerling's work is what we see with like a lot of Hollywood, which is that I think it's very white centric. Like, I think that she writes what she knows. And I think what she knows is to be a white woman of a certain age. (laughs) And so I, you know, like I can't necessarily fault that. Um, because it's her perspective and I am also very wary of people sort of writing outside of their perspective because I think unless you really do the work of trying to understand somebody else's experience, then you're just writing based on like your assumptions and that does not go very well. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think for me, it's like, for the most part, I really, really liked Clueless. But I also, when watching Clueless, always think, like, what would this movie be like from Dion's perspective? Right. Or you with know, a like, writer think... that, you know, that was black. I mean, I thought the same thing yeah. when I watched I Could Never Be Your Woman, because it kind of, it shows mm-hmm. the kind of behind the scenes of her writing quote-unquote, like, ethnic dialogue. And I was, like, I was Mm -hmm. a little uncomfortable, like, watching that because it's, like, played Mm -hmm. very, like, oh, are we being too, is there too much slang? And then you see people say this on screen and you're kind of like, I don't know how I feel about Michelle Pfeiffer writing these words. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, so I definitely agree. Like, I think that, I I think it's one of those things where I'm like, "Uh, I don't, I don't think you're doing like the race thing as thoughtfully as you could be. Right, right. It's like they're bringing it up, but they're not like examining it. They're just like, it's just funny. You're not engaging with it. Right. And I'm like, no, not really. Not Uh, Not really. Not really. (laughs) But, but to your point as well, you're like, okay, that was like the late 2000s. Right. Which is time. not that long ago. Not that long. You're right. Not that long ago, but a different time. Like, I think that we have made like really important progressive strides lately. But I also think that you would probably see the same style of script in a lot of those movies that are sort of catering to white women of a certain age. Yep. Like, think about like the book club movies or like the. <laughs> 
mom's movie. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah, but you know, but I do still think that like, I read this very interesting piece recently, actually about Clueless, which posited that like, if you watch Clueless and you think about the fact that Cher is almost Dion's sidekick, then it's a more interesting oh, watch. Interesting. And the example that the that the article gave, which was very interesting, was about Cher's uh, like her outfit choosing software <laughs> and how like I can't even I'll have to find it and share it with you just because it's fascinating. But it was based about the fact that like Cher mentions offhand or something that like Dion has the same program and the writer took that as like a jumping off point to like what would happen if you centered Dion in this narrative mm. and how would it change or not change and like how her relationship with Murray is actually very interesting in terms of how the characters themselves are aware of the stereotypes that are used against black people mm-hmm. and how they sort of use those for their own ends in terms of like popularity, but also how they're more than those stereotypes and how their yeah. relationship is built on something deeper than that. So I, I honestly, agree. I, I would watch that, that movie. That sounds, amazing. I would watch that movie. <laughs> yeah. So like, I definitely think that her work is dated in that way, but I don't necessarily think it's offensive if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I think her yeah. blind I think her blind spots are evident and what she doesn't know is evident but it's not like long duck dong levels of like Jesus Christ like right. how I can't watch this like this is terrible. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. So, or yeah. even using was- more modern perspectives. I mean you can look at I mean we just covered on the show Michael Bay uh and his blind oh. spots are <laughs> are very apparent but also super fucking offensive so it's like there is a way you can be blind about things and come off in a way that's like oh you just you just don't know and that's okay let's figure this out whereas someone like michael bay you're like i don't want to talk to you uh about (laughs) like if you watch something like i don't know 13 hours secret soldiers of benghazi you're gonna be like Oh, you're super fucking racist. Uh, this is. I mean, Six Underground. Six yeah. Underground yeah. movie that I despise with my whole heart. It's, and well, you would be you, just... you would be happy listening to our episodes because neither one of us like Good. it at all. So it's... good. I'm need to revisit that. But yeah, with Michael Bay, you're like, do I need to teach you about colonialism? And with Amy Heckerling, you're just like, okay, so. You could okay. maybe, you, you could probably tell me to read. You could do better. Yeah. 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 Give Amy Heckerling like a copy of White Fragility or something. Right. And, like, yes. That's yeah. perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we kind of referenced this earlier, but I wanted to give you the opportunity, like, how do we explain these gaps in her work? Because like for a, you know, a certain period of time, she wasn't only a good filmmaker, but also like made a lot of money for the studios. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Mm-hmm. I remember talking to a friend of mine about this, I guess, on uh, Karina Longworth's uh, podcast. You must remember this. She talked a lot about how the idea of a tour theory uh, in the way that people talk about it, not the actual theory itself, but in the way people talk about it, it's pretty awful and sexist, where we will look at male filmmakers in a very different way than we do female filmmakers as these kind of controllers of the art form. And they are the storytellers. And we don't maybe think that way about female filmmakers. So are the gaps in her, in her filmography, is this just like pure sexism? Was there something else going on here? Like, 
What is, because like I look at it and I'm you know of course like you look at you like yes obviously Hollywood is horrible and sexist and does terrible things to female filmmakers I think that's I don't think that's a you know a revolutionary statement at all no um, but like what is going on specifically with her career because it's not as if it's not a situation where there were these big mistakes and these movies failed unless you want to talk about loser maybe, but I don't think that was a movie Mm -hmm. that was expected to make a hundred million dollars. Right. So, so what do you think was going on here? Like from your perspective, like with these big gaps in her work, I think that you addressed all of it in various ways, just in your question. So I think that there. No, no. And I think that's fine. But I think we can like dig into it because I think you're on to like a lot of different things that we talk about when we talk about like the failures of Hollywood. Right. (laughs) So I think for me personally, what I, I, my working theory before what came out about her daughter, my working theory was like, yes, Hollywood is sexist and terrible. And like, you're not giving her the money to make the movies that she wants. And, you know, I was very angry and, like, stuck with that narrative. Uh I think when I look at that narrative that I've, like, created for myself about her work, I sort of begin to, like, question that reading of it. Because I think to myself, like, okay, so after Clueless happened... There was a Clueless spinoff show, which she was involved in developing and like she directed and wrote a couple of episodes like, okay, but did they want her, you know, like, did she go back to the studio and the studio was like, you have to make another Clueless. And she was like, I don't want to be making teen movies the rest of my life. Like she has the power to say no to that. Uh So for her, it's like, okay, so like maybe there was studio pressure to recreate this phenomenal success, which she did not want to do. And so maybe the compromise was something like loser where it's still youth focused, Mm -hmm. but then when loser flops, what happens? That to me is the biggest gap. Mm -hmm. Like after loser flopped is when I could never be your woman was seven years later and it went direct to DVD. So I think that that time span is really interesting because I think to myself, like what happened in that time that might've affected something. The other thing I think about is I do think about the fact that like she had a daughter and she was raising her daughter, I believe on her own. And so something I think about a lot too is like, was it sort of an open secret that like she had that affair with Harold Ramis and like did that have anything to do with Hollywood because I I think we also know the reality of like a lot of the stuff that happens behind closed doors we're never gonna know but there are repercussions for you three at the industry because of that so like I've always been very curious like I've always had yeah if you're a woman exactly (laughs) so it's like I've always had a few different working theories like did they just demand more clueless from her Hmm. And she didn't want that. I mean, did she want to go do something else? But the reality is, and I'm sure that you know this because this is like a lot of people know this, is like a lot of female directors just do other things Mm -hmm. because they're not getting the funding to do their movies and they're not getting the funding to be directors full time. Like Kelly, I always yeah, mispronounce Kelly her name. a teacher, right? Like she's thank you. She's yeah, a she, yeah, she teaches <laughs> film at a college. Yeah, she teaches film at a college, and then every few years, when like basically she scrounges enough money 
<laughs> right. Okay. Well, I guess I can do first cow film. now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Geez. And and so I, I do wonder like how much of that is what happened. Yeah. And I think also your point about auteur theory is a very good one because it's like Heckerling came up in the eighties and nineties. Like this is very much a gap in my film knowledge, but like, I don't know if I can like name a female director from the eighties and nineties who was getting better experiences or opportunities than she was. Oh, I don't think you, you know can, what I, cause I don't think it exists. Like, Right, right, exactly. So I feel like there also wasn't really a model for like a heckerling to follow, right? Like she couldn't be like, okay, I want a career like this other woman's because like that didn't exist. Right. So I, I think it's just, it's one of those things where it's like heckerling's work clearly inspired a lot of followers and it shaped a pop culture conversation and it just disappeared and the last thing i think and you also spoke to this because like your question was great it like covered everything um is like she was making genre movies that like we don't really make anymore like right Right. now we're in a rom-com resurgence but like for a long time people were like oh rom-coms and to be fair those people still exist um (laughs) it's really streamers like streamer services that are like bankrolling rom-coms now like in a lot of ways like thank god for netflix because like without them the genre would be dead (laughs) but you know i also think that she was making like you said these sort of low stakes movies about people just living their lives and it feels like the desire for those like low budget films isn't there from studios and they're now what people expect to watch on streaming services yeah so she was coming up in that time in that time when like studio priorities were changing I really wonder what her career would be like now if she was like a 30 something coming up. Like if Clueless came out now and it was as much of a huge phenomenal success now, like would she then have a production deal with Netflix like announced like two weeks later? I mean, it's possible. Like, you know, so I just think like it's so much. She is so much an example of like industry priorities and the lack of opportunities for female filmmakers and someone whose personal life might have unfortunately followed her in a way that she didn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up a lot of really good points there. Uh, One of them that kind of sticks in my mind is that there's very few, uh, very few female directors, even now, let alone in the, you know, eighties and nineties that got, popular for making populist films, right? Films that actually were making money. Uh, Usually, like, especially in the 70s and early 80s, it was like you had to be, you know, capital A-R-T, art, uh, to make it as a female filmmaker, right? And then later you have, you know, you have filmmakers like Nancy Myers, who we've also covered on this show. Um, And you mentioned earlier in this episode about Heckerling maybe not wanting to do the same thing over and over again. And I think that's not something you could say about Nancy Myers, where she has found her niche and she is kind of recreating she, it with every she, film. She you know? is going to pound it into the right. I'm going to make my beautiful <laughs> kitchens and you are going to eat it up every three or four years. Right. You know, and so, God damn it, we do. We yeah, really absolutely. do. So you're right. I don't, not only is there not a, you know, not a blueprint for Heckerling to follow, but I, I don't think there is one now. Uh, I'm not sure there's another Heckerling out there. It's usually like, the two extremes, right? The super art movies like Kelly Reichardt 
or you have Nancy Myers. Like you have these two poles. Um, and even, you know, and I'm thinking of other female filmmakers and some of them have made very successful movies, but they're still seen as like high art. Right. Even even if it's yeah. like super success, it happens to make a lot of money. So it's interesting that there's not really a new version of Heckerling. But to talk about something more positive, um, this yes. is the last question in our intro episode. So as we go through our coverage of these movies, what do you think people should be looking forward to? Are there particular movies, stylistic choice or movies like as a time capsule that you're like, oh, you are really going to enjoy this? That's a good point. That's a good question. Um, well, something I think that is really enjoyable with Heckerling, and I think this must be a sign of how she works with her cast, is I feel like the same actors gravitate to her work and end up like mm. popping up over and over again. So like Clueless had Alicia Silverstone, it had Paul Rudd, um, it had Stacey Dash, mm. and all of those people then show up in yeah. other films of hers like they return always a good sign with her you know that's <laughs> always a good sign so like paul rudd um was in i could never be your woman and alicia silverstone was in vamps stacy dash was in i could never be your woman and so wallace sean was in vamps <laughs> so it's like that is I the think, craziest thing to me wallace sean showing up in her movies yeah. like of course, yes. most people probably think of him from Princess Bride, but I think of him in things yes. like My Dinner with Andre. So to see him yes. in a movie like Clueless, yes. I'm like, oh, my God. Of course, I guess yes. he's a voice in Toy Story and all that stuff. So maybe that's just my my like criterion viewing habits showing up. Uh, and most people don't think of him that way, but it is so cool to see him in movies like this. Yeah, so so that's one thing that I really think is enjoyable about her work, is that it's clear that the people involved are having a good time, <laughs> you know, and that's something that really, I don't know why, like, I'm sort of soft-hearted, but I really like that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you know what, these are just people, like, hanging out, making movies together, and right. that's why, like, very much people, um, you know, like, I feel like Marty Scorsese's movies have a certain reputation, but I'm like, you know what, they're just, like, a group of old friends yeah. making a bunch of movies together, and, like, something about that is very charming for me. So I would say that's something nice to look out for for Heckerling's films, is just how many repeat people are there, and sort of how her films are sometimes in conversation with each other. Like, I really think Clueless and Vamps are, so that would be something I would say, too, is, like, you're going to see some of the same similar themes popping up over and over again, just with, like, different perspectives as shaped by time or maturity or genre like i think she has a very specific world view and she's always exploring it just from a slightly different point of view yeah perfect all right so before we close up here uh roxana why don't you tell people how they can find you on the hellscape that is twitter uh so they can <laughs> uh they can find more of your work and your movie opinions Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Roxana, R-O-X-A-N-A underscore Hadadi, H-A-D-A-D-I. Um, and I'm also a tomato meter approved critic on Ooh, Rotten Tomatoes. Fancy. And that's, yeah, so <laughs> fancy. Did you hear the fanciness in my voice? Yes. No um, big deal, but. but. <laughs> yeah, NBD, yeah. No, but I, you know, I do think that's, uh, I feel like that's probably the best collection of my work. Although I have a website, I'm absolutely terrible about updating it. So, I feel like if you wanted to check out some of my stuff, you could hit up the old Rotten Tomatoes. Excellent. Uh, and if you want to follow us, you can, of course, follow us at Directed by Pod. 
Um, and that is it for this time. And we will be back uh, in about a week. Mike and I will be talking about fast times at Richmond High. And of course, look out for at the very end of this couple months of Amy Heckerling movies. Uh, Roxana will be back uh, to kind of wrap everything up and tell us what... Uh, what Amy Heckerling's masterpiece is. So no pressure there. Uh, so yeah, follow us at Directed by Pod and we will talk to you soon.